When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Marion Gold's career stretches 38 years. Eight studio albums with Alphaville, a number of compilation releases and two solo albums. But it was the first two Alphaville albums that had enormous success, not only just within Germany and the German-speaking territories, but worldwide. And their hits, Big in Japan, Forever Young, Dance With Me and Sounds Like a Melody, became household staples. Marion has been the one constant in Alphaville, always looking for a new challenge, and recently found it with the German film orchestra Babelsberg. A double album of tracks spanning over his career have been re-recorded, some in a completely new style, and they'll be released this year. Marion Gold, what a pleasure, because you have created songs, you have created music, and the way that you've sung those songs, these songs have stayed with me uh, for so many years of my life. It, it's a real pleasure to meet someone who has created something that has been important in my life. So first of all, thank you for that. I want to start by talking about your very early years in West Germany, as it would have been called then. Um, yeah. You were born in 1954 in Hereford, which is near Bielefeld. What was it like growing up um, post-war in Germany? Oh, it was, um, I mean, um, well, the, the West Germany was occupied after the war, Germany was occupied by uh, the Allied forces. And uh, the area where I grew up was uh, actually uh, the territory of the British, uh, British troops. So um, I, <clears throat> my contact to uh, English pop music was, was, because of that was quite intense. We had the, uh, the uh, army uh, radio stations. I played all the, um, the the rock and roll songs and stuff, and um, I mean the German the German radio at that time was just a disaster. I know they were playing classical music, and I'm nothing against classical music. I'm a great fan of Mendelssohn, but totally, for instance, I'm the biggest fan of Mendelssohn, but totally. But anyway, um, I um, um, so we were listened. Uh, we we got lots of influence from 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 that side musically. That was one thing. The other thing was uh, where my musical influence actually was then also um, came from the classical side at the same time. So uh, in in a way, you know, my my way of uh, um, uh, musical uh, um, indoctrination <laughs> was kind of um, the the one of a typical middle class kid. I'd say, you know, so uh, 
we were we were probably uh, more keen than uh, Oasis. <laughs> <laughs> what did your parents listen to then at home? Um, oh, my 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 father he uh, he was listening to basically German Schlager music uh, from the from the forties or thirties, and um, so we had we had a big musical cast uh, standing in our um, in our living room and um, and underneath the, the radio with a big green eye we had lots of this uh, these big heavy records uh, with uh, containing all this this kind of music so uh, just because I was so fascinating in listening to records you know I, I listened to all this bullshit music <laughs> Or over and over again, because I mean, that was the only thing that I could play in this thing, you know, and it, it was lots of fun, actually. I, after, after a while, I started really to love the music. <laughs> That's a really bad sign, isn't it? That anything that is played so often that you, you can get to love it. Yeah, you get, you get behind the scene in a way, you know, and then you, I mean, you see it from a different side. Probably the, 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 the bad thing about it, you know, or the pop music is basically first impression thing you know so uh, you you don't look behind the scene you don't uh, question anything you know it's just like it has to work after a few seconds or so you know and um, um, but when you for instance when you're listening to a vinyl record um, I mean the, the the my experience is the first the, the songs that you loved instantly when you listen to the record for the first time um, they became really unimportant, you know, when you when you start listening to the vinyl again and again and again. And those songs that you probably did not like very much in the beginning turned out to be the best, the better ones, you know. <clears throat> so this, it's, it's an interesting re receptional thing how everything works, you know, with the with the human imagination and reception. I mean, you you were growing up at a time where. Um, it wasn't long after the Second World War, and um, I presume this was like the, the period of where Germany was rebuilding. And um, I just wonder whether your parents were at all culturally interested. Um, yeah, my father was very much into, uh, into arts, into uh, paintings, and he was a collector of uh, paintings. And and uh, and like uh, like uh, little vintage things, you know, um, and uh, but basic, uh, very 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 much into into painting. And he, he collected a lot of uh, uh, artists he liked and support also supported them. I I come from a family, uh, well, you say from a rich family in, in a way, you know, and um, uh, so that. The fact that my father collected paintings had also a big influence, impact on me. And uh, for me, music is also a very visual thing. And and I started to, for instance, I started to uh, to uh, not not to paint but to draw. Uh, when from my early days when I was when I was a little kid, and I was always listening to music, and it worked perfectly together. You know, it's it's very hard, for instance, to write things while you're listening to music. But painting or drawing and listening to music is a perfect, perfect thing. And uh, so later on, when I started or when I became a music, musician myself, I, uh, 
it was always these visuals I had in my mind, you know, when I was uh, composing with the other other guys, you know, when we were composing, I always had little videos or little, little stories in my mind, you know. What did your parents want you to be? Uh, well, my father expected me to be, uh, to get into his company and to, to work in his company. And then later when he would retire, you know, I would uh, take his place and I was, I was the black sheep. I'm, I'm the youngest of uh, uh, five children uh, from different uh, mothers, and um, uh, I was the black sheep of the family. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Being the black sheep does make you special, and it, it creates the outsider in, in a certain extent. And the outsider has played an enormous role uh, in popular music. So how did that feeling of being the black sheep shape you? Well, it didn't, it didn't feel, it didn't make me, from in my own uh, feelings, very, very special. I mean... It, <laughs> I, 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 I did not like it. I, I, I mean, you want to be loved by your parents, by your father, you know, you want to have like, um, you know, getting, get, getting compliments, you know, for what you're doing. And I was always the loser. I was always the guy who would not fit into, uh, into any, any scheme, you know, into any plans, you know, of the family. And um, uh, that uh, ended that, uh, it ended that way that I, disappeared and um, uh, I, I became, first I went to the army. Well, I, I was drawn to the army when I was uh, 18. And uh, <clears throat> after that, I just, I got thrown out the army then after 10 months, normally it was 15 months at that time, you know, but I had some problems with uh, officers and stuff. And uh, so they threw me out. <laughs> what sort of problems did you have? <laughs> well, a physical uh, <laughs> interaction. <laughs> You had a fight. You had a big fight. I, yeah, I had a, I had a, we. Um, I I slapped one of the officers in the face, you know, because uh, I, I I don't know. I had these problems with uh, orders and uh, obeying and all these things, and um, <clears throat> so I left. I left the army and I just took the next train from the little village where where I was stationed. You know, I, I took the next train to Hanover, and from Hanover the next train went to Warsaw. Uh, with a stop in West Berlin, you know, so I ended up then when I was 19 in, in West Berlin, which was at that time a very, very special place. And uh, it was a perfect, a perfect uh, environment for, for a person that uh, thinks, well, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not worth very much. I'm a loser, you know, I'm, I'm always losing, you know, I'm, nobody understands me. And you know, in West Berlin was full of these people. <laughs> so, so suddenly I was not alone anymore. You know, I wasn't the outsider anymore. Before we, get to, before we get to that sort of new family, as it were, in Berlin and not being the black sheep, just yeah. one more question about uh, being the generation after the war generation. I'm, I'm also, you know, the, the son of parents who were in the war. Um, and... Being, uh, as I, I, when I talked to Wolfgang Fleur, he said to me that being that generation made him a lifelong pacifist. How did 
being part of the generation, the post-war generation in Germany affect you politically and in your social thinking? Well, I, all I can say is that I'm not a pacifist. Um, and um, I think it, it, uh, it is very important that you, uh, um, when, when you are attacked, you know, by, by some evil forces, you know, maybe uh, uh, Nazis or uh, maybe uh, Putin's troops or whatever, you know, you have the right to defend yourself. And I think uh, um, sometimes there is no other choice. Uh, so I, that was my opinion from, from uh, the very first time when I started thinking about those kind of things. Um, it was probably a little bit like a cowboy thing, you know, it was because, uh, you know, the, this Wild West movies, you know, it, they, it's exactly like that. And they, they deal a lot of uh, times in a lot of films deal exactly with that topic. You know, there is these guys, they, they are these guys, they come from uh, from Europe and they they pacifists, you know, and they and then comes uh, the evil force, you know, and they have to make a decision. Shall, shall they carry on, you know, with their beliefs or shall they defend themselves? And, uh, so that that impressed me very much, probably more than uh, when I was a kid, probably more than uh, uh, than uh, the uh, actual his, historical uh, things that happened uh, 10 years, 10 years before my birth. Um, we in our family we we did not talk very much about the war. Uh, um, my my father was actually not very very much interested in talking about these things. There's there's only one thing. Part of my family live in London, and um, when the war broke out, uh, my father and my uncle, who is English, my my uncle is English. Um, they were, they uh, both were drawn to the um, to the air force, and my aunt was always like, "Oh God, they are going to kill each other." <coughs> and uh, when the when the war was over, my my father uh, went into um, a prisoner of war camp, and uh, it was my uncle who took him, uh, who managed to get him out of this uh, this. Uh, uh, on I think it was the fifteenth of June. When he managed to get him out, and since then they always uh, met at the 15th of June, one in London and one time in in, in uh, uh, Bielefeld, where, where my father lived, and finished a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> so um, most most of the things I heard about the war actually I heard from my uncle, not from my father. So okay, there's this 19 year old who's you know slapped an officer. Uh, left, gone to Hanover, and then gone through the corridor, as it were, at that period, to this little island, in a sense, of Berlin in the middle of East Germany at that time. Um, what were your first impressions when you actually got there and got off that train? Can you remember what you what you felt about that city? Well, my first question was, God damn, where are I going to sleep? You know, it's, it's, I had no money, I had nothing, I, I, I had no intention to... Uh, going to my family, I, I was just, I just was just like, I don't want to, I just want to disappear. And uh, West Berlin was a great place to disappear completely. It was like you slam in a door behind you and leave everything leaving outside. And there was no other place on the whole planet like, like West Berlin at the time. 
and um, and I started a complete new existence in a way. So uh, the first couple of months, you know, I I I was a I was a homeless person, and I lived with all these homeless people in the park, and um, yeah, and uh, I think actually the the first album <laughs> we did is a lot about these times, you know, like summer in Berlin, for instance, you know, and uh, summer in Berlin is about. West Berlin wasn't a very nice place in a way. It wasn't a very romantic place. It was uh, in the winter. It was horrible, you know, very gray, very, very much like Soviet kind of uh, black and white. Uh, terrible, terrible feeling, and it's the smell was terrible there from the uh, from the coal heatings and everything, and. Um, in, in summer, it, it was it was very very different. It was uh, could could be could be very romantic. There could be very romantic moments when you when you were when you were uh, spending your time in the parks and in the shadow of the wall. Uh, there was some rom romantic feeling about it. And uh, actually, when I when when we wrote uh, "Summer in Berlin," I tried to explain in the song. I tried to explain that all these ugly things in West Berlin were, in a way, they could also be, it, it really depend on the perspective, you know, they could also be very, um, very beautiful in a way, in a, in a, probably in a perverted way somehow, but uh, it, uh, it, was, it was just the environment where I, uh, where I uh, <clears throat> experienced freedom for the first time in my life. <laughs> This is so ridiculous because West Berlin was the result of the opposite. <laughs> You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I mean, I know that you that that, <laughs> that, that experience in Berlin influenced many tracks on the album. Obviously, you know, uh, Big in Japan, you mentioned, well, you mentioned Zoo, which I presume is Bahnhof Zoo, uh, and uh, and the um, idea of uh, buying drugs or buying heroin. Um, the, uh, um, obviously, Forever Young is the threat of uh, nuclear annihilation at the time, and living in Berlin, you are, you know, on, on, the, on the border. Um, and this this sort of experience were you were you aware at that time that you were going into a musical direction or were these just experiences that later when you went to Munster were these experiences that later you could reflect on uh, no I, I, it was not my plan to uh, to become a musician i want to become a painter and i started a couple of uh, semesters uh, at the uh, university of arts in uh, in West Berlin, and uh, then I, ha I had this friend, Michael, and he he was very much interested in music, and not only listening to music. I mean, we were both great fans of music, and we had like uh, after a while, I had a, a couple of of albums, uh, and uh, <clears throat> and we went we, we were really into into music, but more as as consumers. And then he one day he came up and he had a little. Uh, drum machine, and uh, and we yeah we started to play play with it you know and we were drumming alongside with the with the drum machine and and, and then uh, we thought well is there is there anything else we could do because nobody else, nobody could play any instrument so uh, 
we bought a little sequencer and uh, a little synthesizer which we connected with the sequencer and let it run alongside the drum machine and well, then we we heard we uh, from you know Brian Eno uh, used like loops from drums drum drum fills or so so we had like this we also couldn't you know did these drum loops and uh, and let them run and then play played alongside with, with uh, some keyboards and uh, yeah and it was very primitive but we, from the very first moment on we started to uh, uh, to write music we never started to um, um, to cover any other any other's music so we, 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 we composed from the very first moment and it was that was actually the point that I, I would have never expected myself that I was able to compose music because that, that I thought this is something unbelievable complicated <laughs> and, and uh, then we found that we were able to do that even if we couldn't play music I mean if we couldn't play any instruments or what we were able because of these little toys that were just invented at that time I mean without this machinery Arthur would have never existed it, it, impossible and then uh, the, the next thing was uh, I, um, I heard the the first album of orchestral maneuvers in the dark electricity and that that was just I thought wow this is they're doing exactly what we're doing because we were so we felt so alone you know because uh, it was the, the time of punk music and everybody was you know everybody was playing punk music and everybody was you know the guitar was the thing and keyboards were just bullshit and <clears throat> we so we were again I was on the bullshit side <laughs> Suddenly, you know, there was this band, OMD, and they did exactly what, I mean, it was just an overwhelming experience when I first heard this record. And, uh, and that was the biggest encouragement for me. Um, it wasn't Kraftwerk, it, it was OMD that, was, that really changed my life. Going back to, to Berlin, because that's a period in, in Munster, I think, that you're talking about there, but going back to Berlin, Berlin was also the era of, of the Bowie trilogy. It was... And for me, um, when I was growing up, Bowie represented, it wasn't just his music, he represented the outsider, he represented the alien, he represented the place I wanted to go and to sort of get the fuck out of where I was with my family at that time and to get into a world where I thought I would be understood. What music did you listen to in that period that represented, in a sense, apart from OMD, which is the, the music the actual music you're sort of saying, but what represented the future for you at that period in Berlin? Well, actually it was Bowie, but it didn't represent the, the, the future. The future was OMD. The, Bowie represented something. Um, Bowie was a person that I adored. You know, Bowie, I mean, it, to be like Bowie was so easy. Just put a little bit makeup on, and you were beautiful, you know. And and it, it was just like, uh, yeah, it, it was this outsider thing. But suddenly, you you know, just because of that, you became attractive to other people, to men, to women, you know. Uh, and you could also um, you could um, you had different personalities and. You could choose between personalities. You could choose between sexes. You could, 
you had a lot of options, you know, when you were a Bowie fan. And uh, and Bowie was like God for me. I mean, it's, it's, and I, I, I covered when after, I think 20 years later, I covered uh, a Bowie song, the first song I ever heard from him. And um, which was, uh, but it was, uh, it was like, uh, um, I don't know, Bowie was, it was a monument. You, you, it was not like you, uh, um, uh, I would have never tried, you know, writing a song that sounded like Bowie or whatever, you know. I could sing like him, I could imitate him, but when, when, I, when I was singing my own songs, I could never sing like him. I mean, there, there are lots of people like, for instance, um, Brian Ferry or David Sylvian, you know, also heroes of mine, um, that in their timbre, there was, there was also a little bit of Bowie. You know, I couldn't, I always, when I was singing our own songs, I was always singing like, my voice sounded like me, not like anybody else. And um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it was a disaster when two years or three years ago when he died. I was, I mean, I, I, we were we were sitting together, lots of my musical friends, and we were all crying. I mean, it was. Yeah, uh, I hate to say it, six uh, years ago. It's actually six years ago. Yeah, twenty sixteen. Uh, fucking hell! This this uh, <laughs> epidemic, you know, it's just a black hole. You know, it's. <laughs> You always have every memorable. You have always to add two years. <laughs> Six years. And that's it for part one of this interview with Marion Gold. Come back for part two, where we explore the new album. Mm-hmm.